Welcome to The Wheel, a Collegium Institute podcast, hosted by Collegium Student Fellows together with senior members of our team. This podcast features interviews with visiting scholars and faculty authors of new work that help us to appreciate the shape of life today, both in its dynamism and in its timelessness. Here we approach the mysteries of reality with wonder, exploring from a wide variety of disciplinary angles, all of which revolve around a core commitment to the unity of truth. Here, authors make the case for how and why their books are important, not just for specialists in their own field, but for all of us inside the university and out who seek wisdom for a life well lived. We're here today with Dr. Dugdale and her book, The Lost Art of Dying. And I just have a couple questions for her. So my first question is, for listeners who may not have read your book yet, could you explain what motivated you to write it? Sure. Well, thank you so much for inviting me to speak. It's a pleasure to to chat with you today. Uh, I am a medical doctor and a medical ethicist. And so that means that I'm interested in questions about what is the best way to care for patients? How can we help our patients? We as doctors and healthcare professionals help our patients um, both achieve their goals, but also do so in a way that leads to uh, authentic human flourishing. So these questions really about what is a good life, you know, deeply philosophical questions. What is a good life? Uh, how do we achieve it? And what does that mean in the context of health and sickness? Uh, what does that mean in the context of living and dying? And so as a doctor, I have had so very many experiences with patients who have pursued aggressive use of technology, even when they're dying, even when they're aware that they're dying. And rather than transitioning to focus on what it means to end well, uh, and, and all of the sort of complicated, um, interwoven pieces that that might entail. And we could maybe talk about that. Uh, they, just cling sort of uh, steadfastly to technology as if technology is the answer. And so I've had many, many patients die poorly and they, their loved ones will come back to me and say that it was an awful experience. Uh, but it's, it's bigger than this question of just, you know, aggressive use of technology at the end of life. Stepping back a little bit, there are related questions of uh, what do relationships mean to me? How have I been uh, building or nurturing relationships that matter, or am I sort of waiting until crisis mode and then trying to salvage the relationships that I, I believe matter to me, right? That's a part of living and dying well is investing in these relationships, nurturing these relationships. And then there are also related, so it's not just technology, it's not just community, but then there are related uh, spiritual or existential questions. I have had patients who only at the point of finding themselves staring death in the face, do they take on or begin to think about, you know, so-called religious questions that they've pushed off their entire lives. And, you know, sometimes when patients are actively dying, that's not the best moment to, to sort of talk through those questions. Uh, and so I have been called to the bedside sometimes of patients who are really in an existential crisis as they face death. You know, what does life mean? 
Why am I here? What am I, what did I live for? What is this all about? Uh, but to, to try to even be a sounding board, right? So I'm, that's, it's not my profession to uh, engage those questions, but to even be a sounding board for patients uh, when they're actively dying. Sometimes it's just too late. So I've had all of these experiences with patients and I have thought so many times, we have to do this better. Uh, we as healthcare professionals need to help our patients die better. Uh, and we need to encourage them to take up these questions of, of living well in order to die well while they are healthy, right? So if the two are very much related, living well and dying well, uh, then we need to encourage, uh, encourage the living well component, living well with a view to the end of life, living well with a view to one's finitude or finiteness. Uh, so that's sort of the project. And it's this most recent book, The Lost Art of Dying, builds on an earlier academic book that I uh, edited with a number of colleagues who helped me think through uh, the issues from a very, you know, sort of academic uh, intellectual perspective. And that laid the groundwork really for this current book. Thank you so much. Um, it's great to hear about that process. And you definitely bring a lot of those experiences into the book as well. And there was one part at the beginning of the book that stuck out to me, where you propose a model of the current state of healthcare as a conveyor belt, describing the way patients are carried through the course of care from the time they enter the hospital doors until either they leave or pass away. And you note that the problem is that the conveyor belt does not stop as death approaches. And I'm wondering how have you seen the conveyor belt model either change or be reinforced due to the pandemic and our current situations? Oh, that's a really interesting question. So the the conveyor belt that I describe, and and actually that you know other doctors have described, it's not it's not a novel description. Uh, refers to this sort of momentum that kind of sweeps the patient through the system. So as an example, let's say you have a cough, you go in for an x-ray, it doesn't look like pneumonia, but they find a spot on your lung. Uh, you know, this would be a spot that doctors would want to make sure is not uh, cancer. And so they would order a CAT scan. They, we, I would order a CAT scan, right? And so now we have uh, a, a much more sophisticated test, a lot more radiation, much more expensive. The CAT scan is inconclusive. So another test is ordered and another test is ordered. And this is sort of what we mean by the conveyor belt. And suddenly you're meeting with specialists, you're um, having biopsies, uh, you know, it's it sort of, and then maybe it's still inconclusive. So this, they repeat everything in three to six months and it just snowballs. And there's a way in which the uh, this sort of well-oiled machine aspect of the conveyor belt is really important, right? We want to be able to care for patients in a way that does not hold up a diagnosis if it's something that's readily treatable. Uh, so, so the efficiency on on the one hand is a good thing; it leads to to timely uh, access to treatments. On the other hand, this efficiency also leads to an over medicalization 
of all kinds of even common things. So spots on the lung are incredibly common, but for patients who don't know that, you know, to be told you have a spot on your lung and maybe I'm dying of cancer now, right? It's, it just creates all of this anxiety and now all of these treatments and all of these medical bills. And so, so there has to be a, a way in which we can kind of pause uh, that, that conveyor belt, uh, whether the clinicians press pause or the patients press pause or some combination of the two. Now, with regard to the pandemic, it's changed a lot in the last nine months. Uh, I live in New York City and I was part of the team of doctors that was caring for patients with COVID at the height of the pandemic in New York City in March and April. And I was doing I was redeployed as so many of us were, which means that I was practicing medicine in a capacity that isn't my usual training. And that, you know, creates all kinds of uh, new challenges. Um, But if I think back to March and April, I, I don't know that there was so much of a conveyor belt sweeping patients through the hospital as it felt a little bit closer to a hamster wheel where we were just going as fast as we could, you know, sort of processing as many patients through as we could as quickly as possible because patients were coming in so quickly and we were just trying to get them sort of, you know, tucked in uh, is the language we sometimes use to get them all tidied up, get them, you know, get everything set up for them so that we could move on to the next patient. And there was that sense of they, they just keep coming in. They just keep coming in, right? The, the wheel keeps turning. Uh, and once patients were in, there was so much we were figuring out about this very uh, new respiratory illness that meant that the conveyor belt wasn't very well organized for treating COVID, right? Because we were kind of trying to figure it out as we go along. Uh, We've learned a lot in the last nine months, but at least in New York, because the numbers have been uh, a, a bit more moderate. I mean, of course, numbers are going up again in December, Uh, And we're seeing the impact of Thanksgiving, uh, perhaps social indiscretions as well. Uh, But it's not overwhelming in the way it was. So in terms of whether there actually is a COVID conveyor belt, I'm I'm not so persuaded. Uh, The idea of the conveyor belt really is that this is a a well-oiled machine. We figured it out. We know what we want. and, And that hasn't exactly been the case with COVID. So a lot of sort of discerning as we go along. So it sounds like COVID kind of interrupted, obviously, the normal swing of things and the normal dying process for obviously so many. Um, And my next question, and this is the last one about the pandemic, I promise there aren't too many, but I was wondering and have to ask, what role or value should the process of dying well hold during pandemics and how does what that look like change And going on to what you talk about throughout the book, I hope I'm saying it right, the R. Moriendi. Yeah, the R. Moriendi. The R. Moriendi. Do you see a role for that as lessened or heightened during times of social crisis? Right. So so the Ars Moriendi is Latin for the art of dying, and it refers to a body of literature that developed in the aftermath of the bubonic plague outbreak of the mid 1300s. So plague 
has happened repeatedly throughout history. And you've even heard uh, many times the the COVID pandemic referred to as, you know, the modern plague or the, the plague of the 21st century, right? There's a lot of use of the word plague, but the bubonic plague uh, of the mid 1300s was a uh, an infection caused by a combination of rats and fleas that transmitted a bacterium that caused this horrible uh, sickness that would tended to kill people in about five to seven days. So from the time you first felt ill to death was about five to seven days. And the and so there have been outbreaks over the course of human history, but the one in the mid 1300s is estimated to have killed between somewhere between one third and two thirds of all Western Europeans, which is just phenomenal. And unlike COVID, which has tended to target older people and folks with other medical problems, plague killed everyone. It was indiscriminate. And, um, and it was very, it was quite rare to actually recover, uh, though it not, not totally impossible, but it was rare. So, so when you have one third to two thirds of your population decimated by an infection, the bodies, you know, built up everywhere, um, priests themselves, right? So priests being the leading social authority in the uh, late middle ages, they themselves were not immune to the plague, right? So, you know, having, having a priest collar did not confer any special benefit in terms of, you know, immunity. So many priests died, many religious leaders died in the care of patients, and then others who were well-connected and frankly, you know, less inclined to get their hands dirty would skip town, right? If they uh, because the infection was carried by rats and fleas, if you could escape to the countryside where rats infect, infected rats were not a problem or didn't live or hadn't reached, um, then you were uh, less likely to get sick. And so, so some priests did that, religious leaders did that. So what you have then is tons of dead, tons of dying, and very few people surviving to care for the dying and the dead, to um, provide proper burials, funerals, et cetera. So uh, one of the pleas on behalf of those who survived was that they would be able to prepare for death on their own, that they wouldn't need to sort of wait for the priest or they wouldn't need to uh, uh, appeal to an authority to help them think through these questions of living and dying well, but that they could be in a sense empowered to do it on their own, which doesn't mean they were advocating for a break from the social authority, i.e. the church, but they were advocating for um, being equipped with tools. And so about 60 years after this plague outbreak, the we we don't know who the author was, but the very first version of the Ars Moriendi or Art of Dying Handbook was released. We believe that the author was affiliated, perhaps, with the 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 Western Church, because it seems that this very first version circulated via uh, channels related to um, to the church, but so it remains unknown. Uh, but there, there's a very first iteration of this Ars Moriendi handbook, which was very uh, uh, um, Catholic in many ways in its identity. But uh, the the Ars Moriendi as a genre of literature did not stay within the church. Uh, it quickly was picked up 
by all different people groups, religious denominations, and even uh, non-religious groups. So, of course, you have the Protestant Reformation in the early 1500s. And once you have that, the Protestants in true Protestant form, they make their own version, right? And then, you know, you end up with Jewish versions. By the 1800s, you have uh, completely non-religious versions. In fact, the former president of Harvard University, Drew Faust, she has a book on the Civil War. She's a, a historian. And in her book on the Civil War, she talks about how by the time of the Civil War, um, if you were brought up well, you were from a family that sort of thought about what it meant to, to live well, the anticipation and preparation for death, in a sense, the Ars Moriendi was just part of your practice of being brought up well, uh, regardless of religion. It didn't matter if you were religious. You, you just had sort of this societal obligation, um, personal obligation, familial obligation to anticipate your mortality and to prepare. Um, so, so that's the Ars Moriendi. And, um, you know, the question is whether it, it is more, excuse me, the question is whether it is more relevant now during the pandemic. And what I love about the Ars Moriendi and the reason why I take it as sort of a, a foil, if you will, for my book is because the premise is that you prepare before uh, before the stressful situation. You prepare before you're dying. In a sense, to die well is the lifelong anticipation and preparation for death. So yes, the Ars Moriendi is incredibly relevant during pandemic if one has, in a sense, practiced that art of dying uh, over the course of one's lifetime. Um, you know, the, sometimes people ask me, well, uh, do I have to do the work now? Can't I just wait until I get the bad diagnosis and sort of then start to do the work? And I, I mean, I'm sure there's a way in which, you know, if you're, if you've got your wits about you, when you receive a bad diagnosis, then you could quickly scramble to mend your broken relationships and get your financial stuff in order and get your spiritual questions in order. You know, you could sort of rush to do that. Um, but my argument always to people is that there's a way in which life will be infinitely richer and your relationships deeper and more meaning to your life if you consider these existential questions now while you're healthy and sort of live into that over the course of your life rather than saving it up for the end. So yes, the Ars Moriendi or art of dying is, is very relevant in pandemic, but it's very relevant uh, at any point. And the thing that we keep forgetting about the pandemic with the talk of the vaccine, which I'm, I, I fully support, um, is uh, that mortality always has been and always will be 100%, right? So yes, the vaccine might thwart some deaths by COVID, but people will still die. Uh, and so because mortality is something that we cannot escape, um, we should prepare. And it doesn't matter when, but we should, we should always uh, be in the work of preparing. Wow. So this is a great transition because you've just mentioned kind of the proliferation of the Ars Moriendi across different religious groups as they came about and even non-religious groups, secular groups. And my question is, do you see a connection at all between increased secularism in society and the loss of such a strong connection to the Ars Moriendi? And if so, what is that connection? And if not, do you see a role for secularism in the revitalization of a modern Ars Moriendi? Yeah, that's an interesting question. The, the reason why the Ars Moriendi fell out of favor uh, 
is complicated. It's actually multifactorial. So as a body of literature, the Ars Moriendi circulated widely, uh, transcontinentally over different languages and cultures and religions for more than 500 years. So the very first iteration was the early 1400s. And really we see the Ars Moriendi in widespread use until until around the time of the so-called Spanish flu about a hundred years ago. So there are a number of factors that conspired to sort of lead to the demise of the um, this art of dying body of literature. Part of it is, as you say, the you know the secularization of society. Uh, if you look for people who have studied the content of homilies and sermons over time, there's a uh, significant shift around the time of of the flu pandemic of 1918 to 1920, where uh, priests and clergy people stop preaching as much on the need to prepare for death, and they transition to living well. And I think that point in of the, the flu pandemic is a real turning point because you have, during World War One, there's still pretty broad adherence to traditional mourning rituals, uh, which were very much a part of the Ars Moriendi. But there was huge loss of life in World War One, And then uh, on the tail end of World War One, the flu pandemic hits. And then the flu pandemic continues for, uh, you know, almost two years after World War One, And you have significant loss of life again. And as this resolves, we hit the 1920s, which in the United States, at least, is a period of immense prosperity. And women get the right to vote. There's, you know, movies, motion pictures, right? There's new forms of dance. There's new forms of dress. There's such a radical change in society. But the 1920s in the U.S. is often referred to as the roaring 20s because it's a time of prosperity, change, living. It was all about living well because there had been so much death for so many years. People just didn't want to go there. They didn't want to think about it. And so this shift to living well uh, was reflected in homilies and sermon texts. Uh, the, the Rather than sort of, you know, uh, from dust you came to dust you will return, the sort of classic Lenten theme of, of the, the frailty really of the human condition. Um, it, it really shifted to how, how do you live now? How do you live life well? So there, you have that kind of religious piece. And then of course, as, as people become less religious uh, on the whole, they're not even hearing the sort of standard Lenten texts of, of to dust you shall return. So there is a, a way in which uh, secularization plays a role. But I think, I mean, it's hard to say what, what, was the most, what was the biggest influence on the death of the Ars Moriandi body of literature. But I do think a huge part of it was the way in which the hospital became uh, the, the sort of means for salvation. Medicine, modern medicine became the way that we thwart death. Uh, and there's a huge shift. So, so uh, I might get these numbers a little bit wrong, but I, I believe in the 1870s, maybe 1880s, we had a few hundred hospitals in the US. I have the numbers in my book. I just don't remember them off the top of my head. By 1920s, I want to say we had several thousand hospitals. So huge increase in the number of hospitals. Now, what do hospitals provide? Well, by the by the 20s and then moving into the 30s and 40s, 
antibiotics. So now suddenly people could be easily treated for infections that would have killed them in an earlier era. So you can go to the hospital. If you think you're dying, you go to the hospital and then they give you new life basically. So we have antibiotics by the forties, we have chemotherapy. Um, By the fifties, we have early attempts at cardiac resuscitation Uh, and the sixties organ transplantation. By the seventies, we have combination chemotherapies, which are just ridding people of cancers. I mean, it was extraordinary right? It was extraordinary what modern medicine has done. And so if you are a baby boomer or younger, this whole idea of of massive loss of life, I mean, it's just not something that baby boomers and younger have seen in their lifetime. We haven't seen it. We haven't lived through war that has wreaked, you know, caused a direct loss of life uh, for us personally. And we haven't had widespread pandemic until this, um, you know, this most recent one. And even still, we've been able to uh, thwart uh, many, many deaths because of modern technology. I mean, the whole idea of the mechanical ventilator uh, and and, uh, dialysis, right? So the two big problems we're seeing with COVID are kidney problems and breathing problems. Well, we have machines to solve both. And so we've had far fewer people die than the flu pandemic of 1918 to 20 because of the technology that has uh, become possible. So, yeah, so it's it's interesting. Um, there are many reasons. And then there are other reasons uh, that we can, we attribute to the demise of the Ars Moriendi that relate to the economy. So in the sort of pre-industrial age, you had large homes in the countryside where if someone was sick, you know, there were extended families around and you could care for the sick. But with industrialization and the move to urban settings for work, which we see a a huge uptick in the late 1800s, people, if you're living in a small urban flat and working in a factory, there isn't space or extra bodies around to care for the sick. So then the hospital becomes a, a fantastic solution because, uh, because if you're working all day in a factory, you know, the, the doctors and nurses in the hospital can take care of, of your sick family members. So lots of different factors that combined. Um, so it's not an easy answer, but I, I think that, that those are probably the big ones. And you talked about kind of the transition between um, in the early 20th century this omnipresent death that was in society and then kind of a wanting to ignore that as that went away and focus more on life and living well. And at the end of chapter five of your book, your chapter on fear, you talk about the importance of dying into life. I'm wondering if you could provide a brief definition of what you mean by dying into life and why you believe it's so important? And in other words, what would dying into life look like for somebody living today in America? So partly what I do in that chapter is I try to try to take on or offer um, advice, I guess is maybe, I don't like that word necessarily, but um, try to offer some wisdom on how to think about the fear of death. And um, it's, it's tricky. There are some people, and I talk about this in the book who feel that if you have any fear, then you must not have 
done your homework, so to speak. Uh, so there was a movement within Methodism in the United States in, I believe, the 1700s, where there was a deep fixation on last words. And you had to get your last words just right because it would demonstrate to your fellow Methodists that you had made your peace with God and kind of worked out all your religious questions. But you can imagine that if people are in that sort of a community and they still have questions, but they're dying. Uh, and now they got to get their last words right because this is going to be recorded and published for the community. And the idea was it would give hope and inspiration to the community, but it really put a lot of pressure on the dying to, to nail down those words. Um, so, so, uh, so I, I sort of hold up that example as a way in which we've kind of screwed up our thinking about the fear of death. Uh, there are many religious people who still will say, oh, if you fear death, then you, you know, like we Christians should not fear death. I hear that a lot from um, clergy people. And there's a, a theological explanation. I mean, there's a theological explanation that they're getting at, which is, it has to do with the Christian understanding of death uh, being one in which death is not the final enemy. Um, and, and that has to do with Christ's resurrection from the dead as a uh, signpost of hope for all Christians. Because if Christ resurrected from the dead, then there is the Christian hope that in it, you know in the end, uh, all Christians, in a sense, will be resurrected and given new bodies. So, so this is a, a very strong theme in Christian theology, and so. Therefore, I have heard many clergy people say, well, okay, so Christians should not fear death. But there's also this very human side of all of us, which is that when we've never experienced something, we're a little bit apprehensive, right? So, you know, whether that's the first day of college <laughs> and or a new job, um, your very first day on a new job can be very disconcerting or uh, getting on an airplane for the first time. I mean, that's something that a lot of us don't even remember the first time we were on airplanes, but um, I worked in rural Haiti and to see some of the... Uh, rural Haitians get on the airplane for the first time. I mean, you, you, there, there's a way in which a completely new experience is, is overwhelming. And even if you're not a fearful person, uh, there's a little bit of apprehension, right? Even if we don't want to use the word anxiety, we can say apprehension and that's a kind of fear, right? So you combine that uh, sort of apprehension about the unknown with the possibility of what you're about to experience is total extinction, right? There's one, I mean, it's normal. It's human to have some fear of death. Even if you've got your, all your religious questions in order or all of your existential questions in order. Um, so, so in the chapter, I draw from a really incredible poet named Christian Wyman and he's a uh, he's an incredible poet. He's on faculty at Yale, and he himself has an incurable form of cancer. So when he writes, he writes from the standpoint of someone who thinks about his mortality quite frequently. Uh, he's also a father. He's got twin twin girls, and you know, so there's a, a lot resting on uh, his sort of thinking about living and dying. Um, and so Chris, Chris Wyman talks about 
kind of pressing in what he, he uses the language of walking toward the fear and the sadness. And, and, and this is what I, I mean by, to answer your question, sort of living into the dying, right? So we're all dying. We're all dying every day. Uh, I've often thought about what is the transition point? Cause you see a baby and you're like, that baby's not dying. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's uh, adolescence is when you start dying. I don't know. I mean, really we're all dying all the time. Um, and so how do we live into that? Well, how do we walk toward the uncertainty? And I think I love, I love, uh, Wyman's language of walking toward because, um, it, it's not running toward, it's not wholeheartedly embracing, right? So it, it, it highlights still a certain amount of apprehension. Um, it's a little bit more measured, uh, a little bit more cautious, but it's still moving forward. And I think that's what living into dying does is we are, we're moving toward our finitude. I mean, we, we all are like, we're every day, one day closer to death. Um, but we're also living well, even as we move sort of methodically toward the end. And why do I talk about, uh, you know, walking toward the fear and the sadness as sort of an antidote to fear of death. The reason why I do that is because again, I think of my patients who have committed wholeheartedly to not thinking about their deaths and they are some of the most frightened people. So I, it's rare, but I've had a few patients over the years who have become very angry with me when I try to, at which I'm supposed to do with my older patients, my patients on Medicare, I'm supposed to ask them about their end of life wishes. It's just a part of what I'm supposed to do, uh, according to Medicare. Um, but when I try to broach, you know, the, that subject, and this is a conversation I'm very comfortable with and usually very good at reading cues of my patients. But, um, on a, on a few occasions, they have become really quite angry at the, uh, my audacity to even suggest that they might die. And these are people who are, you know, over the age of 65. So it's not, it shouldn't take them by surprise, but so you can, these are people who are not walking toward the fear and the sadness. These are people who've shut the door on it and don't want to open that door. And you know what? They're going to 10, 15, 20 years from now, that door will be flung open and they'll be completely unprepared. And that's what I'm trying to mitigate with the book. And you just mentioned, you know, you just spoke about kind of the, the interactions between the medical profession and patients who have this fear. And that kind of brings me to my next question, which comes from chapter seven, your chapter on the spirit. And you have this great quote that I loved and you write that quote, isn't a funny answer isn't a fuzzy answer to life's ultimate mysteries akin to wrapping gauze around a gangrenous leg, end quote. And I found that quote fascinating. And it seems that there has been such a segmentation between the medical field and the spiritual realities that patients may be grappling with. And I'm wondering what role you think the medical field and individual practitioners in particular should play in answering spiritual questions that are afflicting their patients. Yeah, that's a great question. Also, um, it, there's a lot of controversy around it. Um, searches, so I'm a medical doctor and there's a long, and I'm a medical ethicist. So there's a longstanding uh, 
position among physicians and ethicists, which is that it is not the role of a doctor to engage these questions now, uh, because of the power differential, right? In no way do we doctors or professionals want our patients to feel like we're trying to kind of, uh, I guess, proselytize, right? We don't want people to feel like they have to kind of repent and believe because we're their doctors. So, so there's a kind of a strong sense that that's not what uh, clinicians should do. Having said that, I've been in many, many situations, especially because of long standing relationships with patients where uh, it's a little bit closer to a friendship, dare I say. I mean, it's a, it's still a professional relationship, but there's just such a comfort and familiarity. We've been through so much together. We've had so many difficult conversations that I've many times had patients bringing up religious questions to me. Now, I don't turn around and tell them what I think they should believe, um, but I'm certainly happy to be a sounding board and, and I can help them think through it. And often I do that by uh, asking them questions, not, not, not telling them, but asking them questions just to help them think through things uh, in part because uh, I, I am that person in their lives uh, that they can trust with some of these conversations uh, in a way that uh, not dissimilar to the way that patients will come to me and talk to me about, you know, their child's addiction problems or their marriage problems or, and you could say, well, you're not a marriage counselor. You're not an addiction medicine counselor. That's right. I'm not, but I'm a primary care doctor. And as a primary care doctor, I end up being the sort of first line for a lot of different issues, including religious questions. So in, on the hospital side, you know, often in patient settings, there are uh, big teams of uh, chaplains, hospital chaplains. And I think it's fantastic for medical teams, medical doctors and nurses. I think the nurses often are better at this than the doctors of being quick to call the chaplain. In some hospitals, the chaplains will just stop in and see every patient on their unit regardless. And then the patient can say, look, you know, I'm... I'm whatever, I'm Catholic, not Protestant. Could you call the Catholic priest or something like that, right? Or, you know, I'm Jewish, I'm not Christian. Could you call the rabbi? There will be, um, the, there's that sort of freedom, but at least there's a, a chaplain sort of popping in and checking on everyone. And then there are some hospitals that I think do a fantastic job of partnering with patients' own clergy. So I'm aware of a hospital in Georgia that said, the you know, spiritual and religious needs of our patients far exceed the ability of our chaplaincy staff to meet them. Let's give uh, local community-based uh, religious leaders uh, a, a little bit of hospital orientation and guest passes so that they can come in and be the chaplain in a sense to their own uh, congregants. So there are different models for doing this, but it is, I think, w one of the ways that doctors often fall short is they're very slow uh, to think of calling the religious leader. And I think that's something that doctors uh, need to get better at. And my final question, shifting gears a little bit, among the younger generations, college students and younger adults, We've seen, especially with the pandemic, which we know is touching older populations, you know, more harshly, we've seen a bit of a sense of immortality that has always existed in among younger generations that a little bit of invincibility. And 
are there any tools or any tips you can give to a younger generation that's lacking, you know, kind of lacking a direction or a compass on how to begin this process of dying into life? Are there any tips or tools you could give to the younger generation of how to begin this journey? Yeah, I think that one of the things that sobers up the young and invincible is to spend some time with people whose lives have been radically altered by uh, accidents or sickness. Uh, So whether that's volunteering in a hospital and especially volunteer in the pediatric unit, volunteer in the adolescent unit, right? Because then you start to see people much closer in age to you than, you know, the 75 year olds with pneumonia. Um, if you spend some time or in a, in a rehab hospital, uh, young people who've been victims of, of gunshot wounds and are now, uh, you know, learning to manage a wheelchair that they'll be in for the rest of their life. The more that you allow yourself to be affected by, those whose lives have been radically altered by sickness and death, uh, if you really allow yourself to be affected by that, if you really sort of, you know, breathe it in, so to speak, uh, you'll start to think about your own sense of finitude, your own finiteness a little bit differently. And I know that, you know, that's certainly been the case for me. I'm in my forties. I've been hanging around medicine for, I guess, more than 20 years now. And, uh, the more you see, if you really think, oh my goodness, this could happen to me, you know, sitting with a mom whose child was just killed in a car accident or, you know, sitting with a, a, a patient whose, whose uh, college son just overdosed. I mean, you hear these stories and you think, or, or cancers, right? The cancers that come on the 20 year olds and you think, why, why would this happen? But it happens. Uh, but it's true that a lot of, you know, college kids in particular, they don't see that sort of vulnerability because if, if one of their classmates ends up getting cancer, that, that student often drops out of college or takes time off. And then there's right. So, but to put yourself in a, a place where you can learn from those whose lives have been radically altered, I think is, is probably one of the best uh, exercises uh, for personal growth that a young person can do. I would agree. That sounds like excellent advice for us all to take to heart and consider maybe getting involved in those ways. And that was my final question. So thank you so much, Dr. Dugdale, for taking the time to speak with me and answer all of these questions about your amazing book, The Lost Art of Dying. Anyone listening should give it a read. It's well worth your time. And just thank you so much again for taking the time out of your day to have this conversation. Thank you, Lisa. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to The Wheel, a Collegium Institute podcast. Stay tuned for more episodes. And to stay up to date on upcoming events and programming, visit collegiuminstitute.org.